นโมทัสสะกัวทวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะวัตวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะวัตวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังมังสังขังนมัสสะเราจะไปทานอาหารกันที่ศาลาพุทธศาสนาในวันที่1ตุลาคมพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนาพุทธศาสนา The funeral procession for uh, Ajahn Punyo's preceptor, isn't it, Venerable Maha Amon, who passed away uh, two or three years ago now, and um, and so this procession being led by Lumpur Liam and the senior Sangha at Wat Long Bapong, and then a very fitting quote from the teachings of Ajahn Chah. Which says, "Birth, aging, illness, and death—these are universal truths. See this clearly, acknowledge these facts, and you will be able to let go." So, this is—I uh, would suggest—particularly uh, important. We have a uh, a culture that has spent a long time and put a lot of energy. Into avoiding the whole subject of death, mm. we call the death-denying culture. Actually, and so, uh, as I think I've commented before, I, I personally consider it one of the the many, but one of the most significant gifts that Buddhism is giving to the West is helping us to address this uh, imbalance. This um, Area of unawareness that has very significant consequences, <clears throat> and so as suggested in that teaching there of Ajahn Chah, that uh, far from making us miserable, uh, contemplation of death is what actually helps us learn to let go. And why is it that we are not able to let go and accord with, go with? The actuality, the changing nature of life, uh, not just the seasons of the year, which is already difficult enough as it starts to get colder and greyer and darker. We, yeah. Oh, and probably more significantly, the <clears throat> when the loss of friends and people move away or die, uh, changing. Conditions of our health and our age, and all of these are obvious and inevitable, guaranteed, in fact. And yet, how much ability do we have to let go and accord with, go with these things? Isn't it the case that that we all have a lot of resistance to change when it doesn't accord with our preferences? When change accords with our preferences, well, that's something else, isn't it? I mean, Somebody you don't like leaves. Well, that makes you feel good. You know, I'm pleased about that bit of change. Or when, you know, when the winter 
passes and spring comes and then summer and whippy, we like that change. But that's not a wise relationship to change. It's so uh, Ajahn Chah and uh, all the great teachers, uh, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, are encouraging us to pay attention to these universal facts. Birth, ageing, illness and death, these universal truths. See this clearly, acknowledge these facts, and you'll be able to let go. So it's a, a pretty straightforward, clear teaching. So to uh, acknowledge this, to say, well, this is not something that we have together at all. Uh, funerals are, are regrettably inadequate rituals, often, in our culture. They're not an effective, for a lot of people, not an effective closure or support for transition. A lot of people are uh, terribly traumatized by the loss that comes with death. And, and surely we could be doing better. Well, there are some cultures that do do better and have been doing better for a long time. And so, yes, it is something that we can, I would suggest, learn from these cultures. In Vietnam, for instance, it's, I'm told, I haven't been there, I haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm told that it's quite normal to have your coffin displayed in the living room in your house. You, uh, you show it off to your guests, you know, like perhaps in England you have a, 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 what do you call it, a china cabinet and you have the bone china displayed for your guests to come around and the, the family silver. Well, if you're in Vietnam, you have your coffin propped up in the corner and I'm told they'll even take it out and lie in it and, you know, try it out and I don't know whether you allowed your guests to lie in it or not. Perhaps that's not quite suitable. But in other words, it's not something that they pretend about in the same way that we do. And in uh, the case of our own teacher, Venerable Achin Shah, I can remember even when I was living with him, um, and he was still very healthy and alive and active, he already had his coffin there. Somebody had made this stunningly beautiful coffin inlaid with mother of pearl. There's a particular style of, of craftsmanship in Thailand. I forget what it's called, but that is very intricate mother of pearl inlay. Very, very refined. And, and it was made by a, a prisoner, actually. He wanted to make this as a gift, as an offering, uh, uh, an act of punya, an act of merit-making, to give this to Ajahn Chah. And when I remember when I first saw it, I thought, that's not very polite, is it? <laughs> Giving your teacher a coffin, kind of a bit, bit insensitive. And, well, that wasn't the case in Thailand. It was, you know, where it's not a death-denying culture. Uh, with the, the traditional uh, Buddhist wisdom underpinning uh, a lot of the cultural values this was okay. Death is inevitable, and so it was seen as a beautiful gift. If I remember correctly, I think I was told that, uh, that the superintendent of the prison even tried to buy this casket off the prisoner because it was so stunningly beautiful, such a rare piece, but he wouldn't sell it. It, uh, it was a gift to Ajahn Chah. So this is something we can do something about. We are doing something about. Uh, I have in my, uh, my reception room... Uh, those of you that have been in there will see I have a nice little wooden box in the corner of my room with my uh, tea lights in it that I use on the shrine. 
and that little box is actually intended for my ashes, which I hope Ajanebinanda and Ajanpunya will remember at the time. I hope it's a while yet, but the box was given to me by some good friends, a, a couple who uh, some years ago, husband and wife, uh, they wanted to make a gift to each other of their ashes box. Uh, given the context of, of English society, it seems like a little strange thing to do, but these people have been practicing long enough and you know, they don't want this to be something that you know, is, is hidden away. They're not indulging it. They're not morbid people. They're very beautiful people, very happy people, good long-term friends of the community. And indeed, these, uh, these boxes were made by a good long-term friend and supporter of the monastery, a local uh, cabinet maker who has a cabinet shop who, who interestingly told me that he didn't just make these two boxes for this couple and the one for me. He decided at the time to make a whole string of them, some out of oak, some out of cherry, and various other different types of wood and very beautiful very, very nice handcrafted boxes. But what was interesting was, as he told me at the time, was the effect it had on the, the cabinet makers, the chaps who worked for him. How to be occupied with making something that's directly to do with death. You know, how this affected them in a positive way. Uh, now, it may have affected them in another way if they hadn't been encouraged to think about it positively because we do have definitely a very strong culture of avoidance of the reality of death. It's seen as morbid. It's something that shouldn't happen. But this is not what our teacher, the Buddha, was encouraging. In fact, he wanted us to make this really conscious, fully conscious, because he knew the degree to which we avoid reality, we're afraid of reality. And one thing that is really real once you're born is that it's going to come to an end. This, this is difficult for us. We resist this because, well, there's one reason, and that is we don't have a good education. We don't have a good spiritual education. Uh, we have a good Secular education, material education, scientific education, but it doesn't address some of the deep anxieties and fears that we have about this whole thing called life. So the secular education, the scientific education definitely has its place, but there's also this other dimension which we would all appreciate, the spiritual education, the education of the heart itself, which is a different dimension, different frequency. So this is the dimension the Buddha was pointing to and over and over again in the teachings uh, there's a, um, a Dhammapada verse which many of you will have heard in verse number 6 which says that those who are contentious forget that we all die for the wise who recollect this fact there are no quarrels for the wise who recollect this fact there are no quarrels the fact of death Birth, aging, illness, death, these are universal truths. These are facts that, from this verse in the Buddha, is pointing out that those who recollect this fact, there are no quarrels. Because we pretend it's not going to happen, we go out of balance. And 
Once we're out of balance, then we end up having all sorts of distorted views, distorted thoughts, distorted feelings, which give evidence in the effect that we end up having quarrels. We end up fighting with each other. So a part of the what's known as Maranasati, a recollection on death, what the Buddha encouraged as a meditation object. Um, it's not a big deal. It's not, you know, this is not just something for special people. This is normal. This is what all people should be spending some time thinking about. How do I feel about death? How do I feel about the natural consequence of birth? And, and if we don't do that, well, then we end up, as I said, having these distorted thoughts, distorted feelings that are a natural consequence of imbalance. So I've also mentioned in the past, and I'd like to reference again, the work by that American sociologist, philosopher, uh, Ernest Becker. At, uh, I think the what I referred to in the past when I spoke about it was a documentary produced called Flight from Death. He's also, and perhaps even better known, for a book that he did called Denial of Death. And in this, he explores the sophisticated strategies, the myths that we create, a lot of culture, a lot of religion, actually, to avoid the anxiety of the inevitable, those who are going to die. We all have these marvellous minds that can remember the past, and then based on our previous experiences of the past pleasure, we can extrapolate in the future and say, well, if I do that, I'm going to be happy again. If I do that, it'll give me a lot of joy and pleasure. And, but uh, the other side of it is this, uh, this intelligence we have, this ability to extrapolate in the future, means that sooner or later we're going to come across this thing called death, that uh, it happens to everybody, and, and uh, that fills us with anxiety. If we're not wise, if we don't have a wise perspective on it, if we cling to the fantasies we have about the future, then the chances are we'll cling to the feelings that come as a natural consequence of those fantasies and we end up with anxiety. And so to deal with that anxiety, we have two options. There's the wise way and the ignorant way. The way of awareness, the way of unawareness. And as Ernest Becker is very skillfully pointing out, a lot of what human beings have done in their stories about reality is create myths that attempt to protect us against this anxiety. And what this documentary I was mentioning there, and I recommend to you, Flight from Death, what that addresses is the violence that human beings will demonstrate if their death-denying myths are threatened. Uh, particularly the movie addresses the... Because what happened when they were making that movie was uh, September 11, uh, that um, the Twin Towers happened right in the middle of making a movie, so they, they directed it towards how terrorism uh, feeds into this. And so I think in our uh, current global crisis where we're faced with the conundrum of, of the possibility of extraordinary happiness and well-being and joy and pleasure... And yet we have this reality of conflict and disappointment and, and pain and perpetual anxiety. How do we understand that? Well, 
part of it is this, this the way we avoid death. That's why Ajahn Chah says that if you understand this, if you see this clearly, if you acknowledge these facts, you'll be able to let go. We'll be able to let go of our death-denying myths. We'll be able to let go of our stories. We'll be able to let go of the lies we tell ourselves. It takes, it takes a phenomenal amount of energy to maintain the stories we have. You know, like, I'm going to live forever. And, and we don't usually even know we're doing it because everybody's doing it. And uh, it only shows up when we actually come across death. Yeah, and we, it's all up in front of us. We can't deny it anymore. It's right in front of us, whether it's the um, um, med- medical prognosis, our own pending death, which uh, I can't say I, I know about. The only time I came close to it, I was unconscious. When I had my motorbike accident... Everything went very dark for, for quite a while, and uh, by the time I came around, I was totally confused and didn't realize that I nearly just died. But for other people who have had a close encounter with death, it's, it has a profound influence. Because what? Because it dissolves the death-denying myths. You've got to stop lying to yourself about the fact that you're not an immortal. And so... The um, apparent reality is often not the thing we should be believing in. You know, this is why this is why it's called wisdom. That's why it's called it's called discernment. That ability to see to see through the story, to see beyond the way things appear to be. Yeah. Now, the way it appears to be is that if we dwell on Death, which is associated with disappointment and loss, if we dwell on it, is going to make us miserable. That's the way it appears. You know, well, it's the same with, with Buddhism. You, know, you hear people talk about it. Those Buddhists are always going on about suffering. Must be a miserable bunch. Well, they're certainly amongst the happiest people I've ever met. So it's not the way it appears to be. Just because it looks like Paying attention to suffering is going to increase the suffering doesn't mean to say it is that way. Just because it looks like paying attention to death is going to make us more anxious doesn't mean to say it is that way. I think it was, um, I think it was a talk by Ajahn Amaro that I, I heard some time ago where he was talking about an experience in his childhood where he thought he would try and run away from his shadow. He saw this dark thing behind him and decided that he would run away from it. And he tried and tried and tried. And it was a, a shocking realization to have to accept that he could never escape his shadow. And I think as a metaphor for what a lot of us are doing a lot of the time, those things that frighten us, like aging, illness, death, Anxiety, fear, rejection, these things that undermine our well-being. According to the Buddha's encouragement of mindfulness, restraint, wise reflection, what we're being asked to do is to stop running. Stop running and turn around and look at them. Look at these things. Prepare ourselves first, not be naive about it. 
But when the time is right to turn around and look at our fear of death, to look at our fear of rejection, to look at our fear of being overtaken by anxiety. Mm. And this is why it does, the way the, the teachers do talk about the need to cultivate wisdom. It's not, it's not it doesn't accord with what, how things appear. Yeah. It appears like this, but the reality is like that. And without proper education, we don't get that. Yeah. We believe that there's a pot of gold at the bottom of the rainbow. Yeah. The rainbows are beautiful, but the reality of a rainbow is there's nothing there. It's an optical illusion. Yeah. It's, it's not the way it appears to be. Yeah. Similarly, with the whole, the whole sense of self, me, this solid thing which is threatened by the, the thought of death. So we really need, we really need to learn to let go. Before we're faced with death, we need to cultivate the wisdom that means that when death comes, there's a chance we'll be able to go with it and not be fooled by the way things appear to be. A rainbow does appear to be something, but once you study it, it's not anything in particular. It's an apparent reality. Similarly to the self. The self appears to be something. From the age of seven onwards, there's a sufficiently differentiated sense of meanness that means I know that that's my mummy and daddy and that's the outside world and that's me and I can say no and I can say yes and, and from then on there's this, this personality evolving in an increasing sense of solidity called me. Uh, and if we don't address that apparent reality with good education, with, with wisdom, with insight, then we suffer terribly always wanting something. I want this, I don't want that. And, and it's so demanding and so greedy. And the, the world, there's no way the world, this planet Earth, I think, did I read somewhere we need five planets? If everybody on the Earth had what we've got, is that right? If everybody on planet Earth had what we've got, we'd need five planets to gratify their desires. There's no way that we can gratify our desires. Our desires are way out of balance. Mm. Where does it all come from? Not because we're all totally bad. Yeah. We're just unaware about the reality. And we don't know how to let go of this apparent demanding thing called me. Yeah. We don't know how to let go of it. We don't know how to accord with the way things are. So this recollection on these facts, birth, aging, illness, death, this is one way that helps us let go. It's also one way that helps lead us towards peace. The self-obsession, is that's the thing that's really irritating, isn't it? And those of us who have been meditating for a while, you, you can know what to do, so as the obsessive thinking mind can quieten down a little bit until maybe you get to some relative peacefulness and think, oh what a relief and it's just quietness and ease and awareness hopefully you don't go to sleep in that space and think, oh that's such a relief what are we relieved from 
Me. <laughs> Self. It's not like we're relieved from, you know, we were just sitting in our room being quiet anyway. It's not like anybody was doing anything. It's me that was doing everything. It was me that was irritating me. And so it's me that I need to be relieved from. Well, thankfully, we do have a, a teaching which points to this and says, this condition of self-obsession is actually a disease. It's worshipped by the world. It's worshipped by those who are not awake, not aware. You know, self-obsession is that's the preoccupation of, of most human beings. You know, how to feed this obsession. And all of us who've come to spiritual training are aware how difficult it is. As soon as we we embark on this training, we stop feeding it. We decide we're going to sit still for a while. The knees hurt, the back hurts, the neck hurts, the head hurts, the mind hurts, the heart hurts, everything hurts. Why? We just stopped. All we did was stop. It's not like we're driving red-hot needles up our fingernails or something. I mean, that's a reason to get upset. But you know, just to stop, and we can't do it. I mentioned recently that experiment they did in in America where at the university where all these people had to do was to stop and not do anything but think. But rather than think, they would prefer to give themselves electric shocks, subject themselves to physical pain, rather than be faced with their own mind. Yeah. It's an addiction, it's a habit, self-obsession. And it's a dangerous one. It always keeps us in a state of imbalance. And rather than accepting it, rather than owning it, rather than taking responsibility for it, we project out, we blame others, other individuals, and then collective others. And then the next thing you know, we haven't just got political parties, we've got wars. And they are really terrible, regrettable things. And where does it all come from? Self-obsession. And so, as I was saying, we embark on the spiritual path and we, we stop feeding it, we stop following it, maybe take on a little renunciation practice, you know, just once in a while stop eating in the evening, stop listening to music and just intensify a bit. And this thing called self starts screaming, I want this, I want that. Well, hopefully we're prepared and we welcome that. Oh, this is exactly what I want to see. I wanted to get in touch with this momentum, this force that is throwing me out of balance and causing so much suffering for me and others. I really want to see this. You know, so when our spiritual disciplines actually do take us to the point of feeling frustrated, feeling like I can't take it anymore, it's an excellent, successful practice. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't get adequate teaching and they think they're supposed to be happy all the time. You know, there are forms of Buddhism around these days that, that encourage people are supposed to be happy and having a good time and, and unfortunately buys into the, the, the addiction to happiness. And you're a failure if you're not happy. Well, that doesn't accord really with what the Buddha and the great teachers have taught us, which is that on the gross and the subtle levels of suffering, we need to be more aware, more present. What is the consequence of getting to that point of saying, I can't stand this anymore? What do we do when we get to that point? We welcome it. This is the very place where I'm doing what I'm doing that's imposing limitations on my capacity to live life as it is, to accord its reality. This is the point where the consequence of my habitual clinging 
this process, this complex pattern of thinking and feeling called me, manifests itself. Me in my way takes me this far. And this is the result. Frustration, suffering, disappointment, sadness, despair. Can't handle it. And this is the point where we can grow, where we can expand, where we can really learn, where if we've prepared ourselves properly, we can let go. Contemplating the impermanence of self, contemplating our inevitable death, means there's a chance we won't hold on to it quite so tightly. If we forget we're all going to die, we take this thing far too seriously. We think it's ultimate. We con ourselves into thinking it's ultimate. So the contemplation of death perhaps bursts that bubble just a little bit or deflates it just a little bit, dilutes the delusion just a little bit, and we don't believe it as ultimate. So maybe it doesn't matter. Of course, we're not going to bring it on. One's got to be careful in talking about these things uh, that uh, people grasp the opposite and they think, well, there's no point in living. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. To... To enhance the likelihood of death is not the goal. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is according with, with reality, seeing what's true and wise and compassionate and according with that. So the practices we take on, the meditation, the exercise and restraint, and if you start to come across this voice within that's screaming, I want this, I want that, welcome it. Don't see it as a failure. Yeah. From the worldly perspective, you say, you're failing. You're, you're a complete loser, for sure. Yeah. But from the spiritual perspective, the medicine's working. As a young monk in Wat Nana Chat, many years ago, I heard of a, um, it was before my time, but a, a young American bhikkhu in the monastery was relating how he had had a dream the night before that he had taken his robe, his monk's robes, and he'd gone down and he'd done tie-dyed them. I don't know if any of the old hippies here can remember what tie-dyeing is all about. He wasn't happy to have a boring old, you know, ochre robe. He wanted to have a tie-dyed robe. Well, what is that? I mean, that's the reason we have these rather boring, plain old robes, so that we can cut through the obsession with, I want to be special. Everybody, every deluded ego... That's why we're all the same, really, because every deluded ego thinks we're, we're special. Every single one of us thinks we're special. Yeah. My ego definitely thinks that I'm special. It's the nature of the deluded ego to think that we're special. So even that, when we come across that, we start to come across our conceits and see how we want to feel special. Don't worry about it. That's the medicine working. That's good. Hmm. So part of this message, um, well, a big part of this message is uh, there the, the last line of that verse by Jinchara is that you know, reflecting on this, acknowledging these facts, means we'll be able to let go. If we can let go, then there can be peace. Yeah. The inner peace that we all long for personally, uh, peace in the community, peace in the world, it is actually, from the perspective of Dhamma, quite possible. And sometimes you look at it and think, well, it's just not possible. So, well, it is quite possible if we know how to let go. The unaware mind always thinks we've got to have more. I've got to have more. Clinging. My way. The Buddha's way is the exact opposite. 
So this reflection on death, far from being something that are we supposed to feel morbid about? The initial impression might be one of morbidity because we've denied it. We live in a culture that denies it. You go to a funeral and everybody's wearing black and crying and miserable. What's it all about? I mean, why? You know, of course, one's got to be polite and, you know, you go to a funeral, you don't start cracking jokes and be rude, but why do we have to make death into such a miserable affair. It's the, it's the lack of clear seeing, the lack of accepting the truth of these facts, birth, old age, illness and death. These are universal truths. Acknowledging these truths means you'll be able to let go. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.